I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Remember the day the sky turned orange in the Bay Area? It was September 9th, 2020. Wasn't it eerie? Like something out of a sci-fi movie? We took pictures in awe and in horror, and it seemed to cement the fact that our region has been changed, that now we're all living in a new reality. And in what feels like the blink of an eye, fire season is upon us once again, and this year it came even earlier. But what's different this year? With the drought causing tender dry conditions, what exactly should we be bracing ourselves for? Bay Area skies have remained largely free of wildfire smoke, but dangerous weather conditions are complicating two large wildfires in the Sierras. That includes the Dixie Fire, the largest wildfire in the state so far this year. It's more than doubled in two days, and it's near Paradise, a town that was leveled three years ago by the campfire, which left 85 people dead, a disaster that was caused by PG&E transmission lines. Today, Chronicle Energy reporter J.D. Morris joins me to talk about how this year's fire season is shaping up and how it compares to previous years, fire seasons that we're still trying to process and recover from. So, J.D., give me the lowdown. What's been happening this fire season and how is it looking compared to recent years? Unfortunately, California is in the midst of another um, very active a uh, very challenging and severe wildfire season, which is um, really distressing given that last year, 2020, was such a record-breaking season. And uh, as of Friday, Cal Fire said that the number of acres burned in 2021 is up by uh, 257% compared to the same time last year. So things aren't looking great. Um, Mm -hmm. However, I I will note uh, just two quick things. Number one, um, you know, one of the reasons why last year was so bad had a lot to do with a uh, really um, unusual dry lightning storm. And while we've had some uh, weather patterns that have kind of looked like they might be concerning from a lightning perspective and have brought some lightning, we've not yet seen anything on the scale of what we saw last summer in terms of dry lightning. And then the the other thing that I'll just note is that California for a very long time was sort of uh, unnaturally suppressing too much fire. Native Americans routinely burned the landscape intentionally. And for basically a hundred plus years, um, California had this policy of, you know, extreme fire suppression that wanted to put out any and all fires Um, And we've learned that that was misguided and that's not the way to go. And, you know, so we are going to have to learn to live with fire here in California more than we did in the past century. And can you say more about why that isn't the way to go? What have we what have we learned from previous fire seasons that could change the approach this year? Well, that California needs to burn to an extent and that our forests very much are overgrown at the same time that climate change is making the state hotter and drier. So California will keep on burning and we need to manage our forests better, I think is what we're hearing um, now from not only, you know, wildfire and and forestry experts, but also from um, state officials and Uh, state leaders and even uh, federal leaders to an extent as well. Last year, um, California and the federal government, um, which owns uh, a huge amount of California's forest land, uh, they 
agreed uh, to get to a point where we're going to do 1 million acres um, a year of prescribed um, fire in California, which should help, but it will take time to get there. Will some of these things that we've learned from previous fire take time to implement, or are we prepared this season for what's ahead? It takes time to implement. You know, the, the state is doing, has done a lot, but it, it's not something that can be fixed overnight. This is a really thorny, complicated problem with many different layers to it that also intersects with things like, you know, housing and, and where people live and how communities developed over time and, you know, private landowners and people sort of creating more defensible space around their homes. There's just so many different pieces of the puzzle here that um, this is going to remain a a big challenge for California, Mm -hmm. certainly for the foreseeable future. And climate change um, is is just making everything worse because, you know, you think about um, the state getting hotter and drier and what that does to fire risk. I found one of the most useful analogies that I've heard on that front is comparing it to, you know, wet clothes drying in the sun on a hot day when it's hotter and drier. Mm-hmm. Those wet clothes will dry faster than if it's cooler and, um, you know, more humid. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what climate change is doing to California. It's baking the state and making it so that, you know, a single spark will create a much bigger fire, um, a, more, a much more severe fire than it may have, you know, in prior eras when climate change um, had had yet to really take root. So for you, as someone who's been reporting on our fire seasons, are you bracing yourself for the worst fire season yet? Not to be so dire, but is that what I we know. should be bracing ourselves for? It's it's so hard to predict, you know, and, and really right. the wild card, of course, is is these, uh, these offshore wind events that, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, typically happen in Northern California in, in early autumn. And that's kind of peak fire season because we've gone the longest amount of time without um, substantial rainfall. Mm-hmm. So the fuel is like at its driest possible point. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get these fast, dry winds blowing in from um, the Northeast. And that is what really sets the stage for, um, you know, some of the worst uh, wildfires in California history, like the Camp Fire, the Santa Rosa fires in 2017. And we also don't know, you know, to what extent when California does face those conditions, like how well will some of these mitigation measures that we've put in place, um, you know, uh, how, how well will they work? Right. Based on the Chronicles Fire Tracker, which listeners can check out right now on sfchronicle.com, it's an online interactive map of wildfires burning across the Bay Area in the state. We know that at the moment, Dixie Fire is burning up north and the Tamarack Fire is less than half contained to the east of us. What are you keeping your eye on? Um, Dixie and Tamarack are are definitely the big ones. Mm -hmm. Um, Just hoping that uh, neither of those blazes, you know, causes uh, any widespread, like huge amount of um, destruction. But dry lightning and these severe drought conditions that we're experiencing right now, um, you know, is not a good thing in terms of um, fire risk. So I'll just be watching and waiting to see what happens there. JD, you've done a lot of reporting on PG&E, and I want to ask how the company has changed its tune about its role in fire disasters. We'll talk about it after a short break. We'll be right back 
You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. So, so far, Dixie Fire is currently the largest fire in the state in 2021 so far. Um, and it's triggered PG&E to change its tune and approach this year. And we know that you've covered PG&E and their role in recent fire disasters. What's been happening? What is What are they saying now? Well, after the Dixie Fire started, PG&E um, came out with a huge announcement about its uh, commitment to uh, burying power lines underground. The Butte County prosecutors and CAL FIRE are investigating whether um, PG&E equipment was indeed responsible, and if so, if there's um, any laws that were broken, and if they need to be, um, if the if Butte County needs to pursue criminal charges. Um, but uh, so after PG&E filed that report, uh, the CEO came out and said that they want to bury 10,000 miles of power lines underground in the coming years, um, which is a lot, and that is going to be very expensive and very challenging from a logistical perspective. And it's a huge departure from PG&E's approach to that issue in years past. People have been calling for years for PG&E to put more of its you know, above ground power lines underground. And the company before resisted that because it said it was just prohibitively expensive and and they couldn't do it um but the ceo who's new she started she came from michigan in january um she has come out and said that um you know they've learned that they uh when they do this undergrounding work on a on a big enough scale that they can reduce the cost enough to a point where it, it makes more sense for them to do it um you know and i i think they are also probably just feeling the heat, if you will, and sort of understanding that, you know, they need to do something um, much bigger. And is this a long-term project? I mean, how quickly could we see the benefits of them doing this work of bearing its power lines? It's going to take years. Yeah. I mean, it, it's expensive and, and it's just just logistically very challenging and they've got a lot to sort out. Um, we don't have a lot of details. They you know, it sounded when they made the announcement like they were talking about maybe a 10-year timeline, but I think they want to do it uh, faster than that. But it's it's not going to be done in one year. Right. And you mentioned that could be motivated by PG&E feeling the heat of the responsibility that they've had in recent fire disasters. You've mentioned the main culprit and risk facing us is climate change. But can you remind us what is PG&E's responsibility and how much of a culprit have they been? Well, their equipment has started, I mean, the, some of the worst fires California has ever seen. The mm-hmm. campfire um, killed like 85 people and destroyed like 18,000 plus buildings. Um, mm-hmm. It was both the deadliest and most destructive wildfire California has ever seen as measured by the number of buildings burned. And that was started by a like century old PG&E power line um, with a worn hook on it that broke. So that was something that PG&E um, did not um, maintain properly is what Butte County prosecutors found at least. But it is important to understand if you're going to drill down on, on PG&E, there's a big difference between transmission and distribution. And both of those 
kinds of power lines have started wildfires in the past. So transmission towers and transmission lines are those big, giant, lattice steel towers. They're long distance power lines. They're like the freeways of the electric grid that carry power at very high voltages across very large distances um, from where it's generated to a substation typically a distribution line is like the wood the classic like wooden pole with a power line on top Mm -hmm. that like brings power into your neighborhood those are more common they're like the surface streets of the electric grid um pg e is not talking about burying those giant steel transmission towers as Mm -hmm. best i can tell right now And the risk with transmission and distribution lines starting a fire is very different. Transmission lines has more to do with like equipment breaking and starting a fire. Whereas with distribution lines, it's trees. It's it's the risk. Main risk is like a tree falling on the line and starting a fire. Um, So it was transmission that started the campfire, transmission that started the Kincaid fire in Sonoma County in um, 2019, but it was distribution problems, vegetation falling on lines that started like the wine country fires in 2017, um, you know, the Butte fire in 2015, I believe, and um, possibly, um, uh, you know, the the Dixie fire recently up in uh, Plumas and and Butte counties. So PG&E has been a major driver of um, wildfires in California. And, you know, that risk with their equipment is not going to go away entirely when they bury 10,000 miles of distribution line. Yeah, what I'm getting from our conversation right now is that there's this is going to require such a multi-pronged approach and a long-term outlook to see where these new strategies may make a difference. Are there things that you think listeners can do on their end to protect themselves and their homes? Yeah, I mean, I think readyforwildfire.org has some resources on that, um, you know, state official resources on that. The big thing from an individual perspective is, I mean, knowing if if you live in a, in a high fire threat area, having a go bag packed, um, you know, during fire season or even just year round, frankly, and, um, you know, uh, knowing your evacuation routes and being signed up for emergency alerts are really critical. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, creating defensible space um, around your home, you know, cleaning out the gutters and things like that and mm-hmm. um, sort of giving your home a fighting chance. I mean, when we see these these wind driven fire catastrophes like the campfire, um, you know, there, there's not much, um, you know, that that can really be done um, other than like ev- evacuating, of course, but like it's still critical, I think, for everyone in the fire zone to have defensible space because, um, you know, it, it, it's what will give your home, you know, the, the best chance it has to survive a fire when it comes through, even if it is, uh, you know, crazy wind driven and there's not much to do. And what is defensible space for folks that may not understand what that is? It's like clearing like a couple feet around um, your home of, of vegetation. So making sure that like branches, you know, uh, and trees like aren't like in like hanging over your house and like, you know, going to fall on it and that there's not like a bunch of, um, you know, leaves on the ground and your gutters aren't like clogged with vegetation and stuff like that. Um, Mm. because when it is, it just makes the fire much more likely to like get onto your home and burn it. Um, but if you have kind of like five feet, um, you know, cleared around your house, um, and it actually, goes out even further than that. If you go to readyforwildfire.org, you can see 
more of what I'm talking about. Um, but just having having space around your home so that embers um, are less likely to reach it and burn it down is the general idea. I'm a born and raised Bay Area native, but it feels like every year there's something new to learn about this new normal for us. JD, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. You can find JD Morris's reporting on PG&E and wildfires at sfchronicle.com or on the Chronicle app. Be sure to also check out our up-to-date interactive fire tracker. That's at sfchronicle.com slash fire map. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Mm-hmm.